When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Vern Harnish. As most people know in this program, Vern is founder and CEO of Scaling Up. He's also author of multiple books, including Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, The Greatest Business Decisions of All Time, and Scaling Up Rockefeller Habits 2.0, which I think is 22, 23 languages, 800, almost 900,000 copies, I think, worldwide. He's also author of Scaling Up Compensation, newest book. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well on the program. Excited for this, having run a service-based company for years and using the Scaling Up model, really, really helpful. Uh, Excited for the conversation, particularly around compensation, uh, because it is such a challenge particularly for service-based companies. So with that, Vern, welcome to the program. Bruce, uh, glad to join you. So Vern, before we jump into the, all the compensation conversation, I wanted to chat a little bit about service companies and you know how they're different from product companies and from a scaling up point of view, how you treat them. Give me a little insight about how you think about service companies. Yeah, you know, I think one of the the main things that's missing is sub-branding. You know, if you're a product company, then you name everything. Everything is a separate name, even the fastener that might connect whatever it is you're selling to whatever your customer has. That has a part number so people can point to and say, that's what I need. And if they're particularly happy, they say, hey, I use this product. I drive this car. It's not just a Range Rover. You know, it's got a particular model number and year. Yet in service companies, they don't tend to brand anything, Bruce. Yeah. And so I think of Gaussian Neumann, you know, one of our favorite clients in the search engine marketing space. Mm-hmm. And what's neat is they, they go at it different, which is what you must do in every marketplace. They do SEM different than everyone else, higher PhDs in mathematics and physics versus anyone else. And what they'll do is maximize like a million plus keywords instead of, you know, 10,000 or 100,000. But they wow. always had a hard time kind of explaining it. So we got in a room one afternoon and in essence came up with an acronym, a brand called Mask Marketing. 
versus mass marketing. Mass being massive array of structured keywords, which is exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. They then began to put white papers together, mass versus mask marketing. And if you actually go to Gauss Neumann's site and look up the mass marketing, you're going to see now just a wide array of information behind that. But more importantly, customers who may struggle remembering their name, Gauss Neumann, say, yeah, we use that firm that has that mask marketing. And to the extent that you can create actually a new category, that's even better. So Rackspace, uh, students, early students of mine exited for $7 billion. When Lanham Napier wrote his book, he said the single most important decision they made as a service company is they sub-branded their brand promise, fanatical support. And people knew more by that than they knew Rackspace. Riverside, the PE firm, they are known for adding sparkle to the companies that they purchase. And that's actually an acronym with an explanation point at the end that describes the various things they and stages they take you through to go from a financial to a strategic valuation. So first thing, go in and name your design process, name your sales process, name your delivery process, name everything so that your uh, customers can point to it and they can refer it. Yeah. Yeah, that whole idea of being memorable and di- being differentiated in your market is just—it's it's super hard for for a service company. So that whole idea of branding, branding your process, naming your process, and using that as your moniker is, is uh, I think, super powerful. Let's let's talk about compensation because I know uh, you know recent book for you. Um, and before we dig into all the points and the things that you share in the book, why this book? Why this book? Why this book now? Like, what was the motivation behind it? Well, it's really been a forty-year journey, Bruce, having just watched so many companies as they scale do this one thing kind of very piecemeal. You know, they they put it together along the way haphazardly. And at the end, they've got this mismatch that, um, as Alex, one of the CEOs that we feature in the book with TMC said, hey, I'm not sure if this thing was published anywhere that I could defend the rationale (laughs) behind why we're paying certain people what we are. Now, more to the point right now is coming out of the pandemic, you know, normally compensation's been four or five on the list. There's a lot of other things that are obviously important that if you've got those uh, pay is secondary. Look, it's gone right to the top in people's uh, list. And so we thought it was a timely to come out with a book that really took the largest expense for most companies, particularly service firms, and turn it into a strategic advantage. And here's the key. We know that compensation, particularly like base compensation and stuff, doesn't motivate anyone. It doesn't really get anyone to try harder. Look, if you've hired right, you've got folks that already have the will to do that. But getting compensation wrong can very quickly demotivate people. And what you don't want to do is take your largest expense and make it a downer inside the organization. But if you get it right, we see profitabilities jump hundreds of percent. And we've seen revenues jump hundreds of percent. It's like pricing. And we get it wrong because we're dealing with people and people yeah. are not logical. They are psychological. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, you, you kind of start the book with this phrase that I love, which is your, your, compensation, your compensation strategy needs to create value for your customers. I think that's a really important kind of a point or framework on this. How, how did that come about? Like, why, why do you look at compensation as, as something that's going to create value for customers? Well, folks that are in the U.S. know the tragedy of Wells Fargo. You know, you got to be careful. You get what you pay for. Yeah. And all of a sudden you end up incenting people to rip off 
the the customer, rip off the marketplace. And, you know, those are extreme examples, but they happen throughout the organization where you've got people because of commissions pitted against each other. And so the client's not getting the service uh, that they might need. I love the container store. There's no ounce of commission there, which most retailers have. But Kip and Garrett were real clear. We don't want anyone fighting over the customer. You know, when you check out at the retail counter, the first thing you want to ask is, who was your sales associate Mm -hmm. on this deal? Well, you know, I had like four people help me. (laughs) And I really, if somebody knows more about that particular thing I want to buy, you know, let's get that person over there. So it's starting with what is it is best for the customer and then making sure that our compensation system aligns with that inside the organization. Yeah, yeah, I see that happen so wrong <laughs> so many times. These kind of mixed incentives that end up hurting the customer experience, the customer service, or, or really the value you're delivering. Uh, let's go through a couple of the key points. So the first one, which uh, I thought was really interesting, is this idea of being different. Talk to me about how compensation is really a strategic decision or, or how you look at compensation strategically. Well, Bruce, that's the right question because it is part of your strategy. And as you teach and, and, and we do, at the heart of a great strategy is to be different than everyone else. If you pay the same way, if you hire the same people, if you deliver the service in roughly the same way as everyone else, you really can't claim that you're different. More importantly, here's what I see happen over the, the four decades, is we'll be at an EO or YPO meeting and we'll hear a very successful CEO talk about how one of the keys was their compensation system. And so that you run back to your company and you just install what it is that they they did. And that's the worst thing to do is to copy, in this case, somebody else's compensation strategy. You want to zero base it based on your customer and your business model. Yeah. Yeah. We say service companies are, are really a double-sided market, right? We're, we're out there competing for customers and we want to have a strategy and be differentiated from the competition, but it's just the, it's the same thing on the other side, right? I have to compete with talent, right? And if I don't, if I don't have a very clear understanding of who, who my ideal employee is and why they want to come work, what do they want and why our company is the best place for them, right? You're going to have the same problems. You're going to be undifferentiated. You're going to be competing on price. What are some of the ways that people can differentiate on compensation in terms of, you know, how, how they kind of build their compensation model? Or what are some examples of, of companies that have created a really good differentiation strategy there? Well, you know, we open with Lincoln Electric. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a, a service company, though. Look, all manufacturers have a service component. Sure. But they've chosen to pay based on a piece rate, based on a eat what you kill. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, it would be seen as draconian, like last century. Yeah, what's important is that compensation system actually attracts a different kind of workforce. And look, it's not for everybody, and that's kind of what you want, is yeah. to create an environment that's not for everyone, but it's a, it's a place for enough people that you get the, the strange, which is what Daniel Cable said, you know, change to strange. Yeah. So that's on that side, too. As I mentioned already, the container store that chose to say, you know what? And we, we call it a good job strategy. Let's just pay people twice what they could make as a retail employee. And let's then hire folks that we know that can deliver what they call the you know one three rule. One great person can deliver yeah. the same as three good. And so we call it the three two rule. I'm paying twice as much, but my cost per whatever I want to look at is less. So the company wins. The client wins, the customer wins, and the employees win as well. Yeah. And so 
two extremes in two different industries uh, that are much different than folks that they would encounter. If we look at Outback Steakhouse, you know, Outback, the fact that they were able to turn, you know, 20-year-olds into millionaires because of their unique compensation system. And, you know, they're not Facebook or Google. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a restaurant chain. And so we detail lots of small, medium, large companies in the book and their different comp systems. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to find that, you know, a lot of companies will kind of look at that and say, well, you know, but how can I compete in the market? You know, it's, it's going to be so, there's going to be so few people that really want to work here. And we start doing the numbers. And even if they need to hire a, a couple hundred people, you know, if you start looking at the size of the, the labor market, right, you're still talking about very small percentages of the total labor market. If you can just figure out the strategy for how to differentiate and find those right people, it makes a huge difference rather than kind of treating, hey, I'm just looking for anyone on the market. It's a, it's a really unique and can be challenging, but a hugely effective strategy once you get the, the right people in there and you've got that multiple, that that one to three multiple in that. Yeah, we even have a, so we highlight in there a search firm. You know, almost all search firms mm-hmm. are based on almost straight commission. That's a big part of the compensation for the people that are doing the placement. Yet this company that's been around for almost a century doesn't pay a penny of that kind of differentiated comp, nor do they pay it across their various offices. They really want to build long-term relationships with their clients, some they've had for decades, and they want to make sure that any one of their folks that that are recruiting and and placing talent will be there at a moment's notice to help out. There's no internal competition. It's it's all cooperation. And as a result, it's built one of the most successful firms in that industry. But again, it's a radically different compensation system than anyone else in their industry. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now back to our program. You mentioned something in the beginning um, where the idea of if anyone looked at our compensation scheme, you know, they they wouldn't know what to do with it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And I think this whole idea of creating some kind of logic, and my rule was always if a print ended up on the printer and someone else grabbed it accidentally and they saw what everyone's making, like I'd want to be, I wanted to have it reasonably defendable. (laughs) Like I want to be able to explain why we do it that way. Even if they disagree with that, there was some logic to it. And I like this, the, the second point you make in the book, this whole idea of fairness is not sameness. And you, you give the example, which we ran into all the time, a 27-year-old software developer may make a lot more than a 45-year-old ops manager, right, because of the nature of the market. How do you deal with this kind of fairness versus sameness? And what are the factors that go into coming up with some of the levels or, or how you compensate different roles and different people? So it's starting with you know, this fundamental idea that even though it may be the same position inside the company, a service tech to a programmer to an engineer, there really is a wide band of difference between their performances. We've we've really, you know, they've measured it over and over. There can be a, a 3x difference. And as Bill Gates has famously, you know, said, there can be a 10,000x difference between one key engineer, designer, programmer than the next one. 
And so your compensation system needs to accommodate that in a rational way. So in that chapter, we really talk about uh, a professional service firm out of Barcelona, TMC, about 450 employees. They've got a whole band of radiologists that do overnight kind of readings for hospitals in Europe mm -hmm. where they've got them based out of Australia. And, and then they've got the support staff. And one of the things they had to do first was create bands, but very wide pay bands for base pay, where there can be a differentiation of up to two to one, maybe even three to one based on individual skill and performance and education. And they've been very thoughtful in figuring out five things or filters that you can move up in, in terms of getting a higher pay within that single band. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's one of them down to, it's interesting, I was with a high tech firm yesterday, a client of mine, and they were talking about their 401k matching program. And so in the book, we feature uh, one of the firms that realized that 401k matching wasn't fair. It was the same for everyone, yeah. but it wasn't fair to the front line who didn't have the kind of money that they could actually contribute to be matched by the company as folks higher up in the organization. And so they went in and they changed that in order to make it much more fair. Let's provide distributions to the front line whether they have a penny or not in order to contribute. Let's recognize that. And then um, I love the Chula example. You know, we've got a, a client that's really finally innovated in the fast, casual Indian food space. And one of the things in the conscious capitalism movement that we're going back to is a pays, you know, a day's work deserves a day's pay. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting in a lot of service firms is their front line is working paycheck to paycheck and maybe even having to go to payday loans which is draconian. Yeah. And so Julia has the option, if you need it, to be paid daily. Yep. And this company's got surface techs and others, even though they're a high tech firm that just raised a hundred million. And they were like, you know, you're right. We've got some of those people that would be probably well served and we could differentiate ourselves with that talent if we could pay them daily and services have popped up to make this easy. So those are some of the aspects around fairness. Yeah, I like it. Let's talk about bonus plans and, and kind of incentives, because I know this is a big, a big part of the book where you really, really kind of dig into why most bonus plans fail or why they're, why they're problematic. Talk to me about this whole idea of kind of easy on the carrots. Like, how do you create incentives or how do you approach the incentive kind of strategy in businesses? Yeah, and the, and the caveat there, Bruce, and we put it kind of in the subtitle of that chapter, it's really around the individual bonus plans. Uh, and it really starts with, again, the psychological challenge that, and the research again is clear, 97% of executives think they're in the top 10%. And so this is where if they're not earning these individual incentives, it can actually end up being a downer. It's one of the reasons why the salesperson of the year or the month is so dangerous because, and then, and then you tie some kind of compensation or bonus to it because every, all the other salespeople know that you know, Bruce is always going to win it. Yeah. And, and so why should we even try? Yep. And unless that individual bonus really is totally controlled by that individual, that's when you end up having all kinds of other uh, issues uh, inside the organization. It's like, hey, there's no way Bruce could have done what he did without all of our support, yet he's the only one that's getting the individual incentive. So that's one of them. The other one is uh, kind of the one-off uh, bonuses. 
Yep. And that was a mistake that Gene Brown made when he did his first quarterly theme. You know, they had actually generated about an extra 120000 in cash to his surprise. 60 folks in the garbage collection business. <laughs> and so he said, all right, I'm going to take 40 of the 120 and I'm going to throw a nice party, which, you know, do that. Have a lot more yeah. fun with some of that comp. That, that creates experiences instead of just going to go, you know, buy something. And But then he said, I'm going to take the other 30000 I'm going to split it among the 60. And that's like a 500 euro bonus. Yep. And the challenge with that is the motivation lasts about, you know, three nanoseconds. And then the next quarter, they're like, all right, so <laughs> yeah, what are we going to do next to get the 500? And Gene's like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. You know, we'll build in longer term, as we talk about at the fifth principle, gain sharing and, and profit sharing that, uh, again, a lot of thought has to be put into around fairness, not sameness. Um, yeah. But let's do that for the team and for the company. But let's be very careful about these short-term and just individualistic bonus plans. They they can create a lot of havoc inside the yeah. organization. Yeah, no, I've, I've I've seen it firsthand on both sides. <laughs> both the recipient and and the doer of these plans have I've made the mistake. And it's uh yeah, it's it's hard to unwind and and backstep from some of those things, and you you have to deal with it for a while. Uh, let's talk about the fourth big point, the, the gamifying gains. I, I love the example of mini movers uh, from Brisbane. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how to identify what are the ways you can start you know, using rewards, using compensation in ways to kind of incent or to drive certain behaviors. What, how does that work and where have you seen some good examples? Well, there we want to just pop back for a moment and talk about what are the real effects, the three effects of financial incentives. Yeah. And the third one is a motivational effect. You know, we're going to get people to try harder. And that's the one that research over and over shows is least effective. Again, if you've hired the right people, they're like, hey, you know, I, I'm not a Pavlovian dog. You don't have to throw me a bone. I'm going to work yeah. hard. I want to do a great job. Yeah. Uh, so let's stop the, the monkey business. The second is what we call an information effect, though. It is important that your compensation system inform, point to what it is that you would like people to do. And then the first is a selection effect, which is, hey, like Outback Steakhouse, they had such an interesting compensation plan that they were able to attract some of the best young people to be restaurant managers or what they call proprietors. Mm -hmm. And so for many movers, it was really much an information effect where they're like, look, we're moving people's furniture. What's the most important thing that they don't want to have happen, and that is it to get damaged. They don't yeah. want a scratch to that furniture move. You could even be a little bit late, you know, with it, but you damage it, it's bad news. Yeah. And so they said, we normally pay an insurance firm about 3% of our revenue to ensure if there is damage, we'll repair it. And the owner's like, why don't we just share that with the employees. Let me cut mm -hmm. you guys a deal. If there's no damage on that job, what would have been the 3% of that revenue or uh, that we earned off of that move, we'll pay it to you. But if there is any damage whatsoever, it's going to come out of that pool of money. And here's what's brilliant. You have the most powerful tool in business, peer pressure. Mm -hmm. So they're not really they're scared to damage something because of the boss. They're not there really to damage any, you know, worry about damaging as much for the customer. They're more worried about being yelled at by their peer. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the self-policing that that creates is powerful within the organization and really the cooperation. If they see a newbie making a mistake, they're going to on the job, hey, let me show you a better way to do that. So we make sure that we're going to get that pile of money, additional pay for this move at the end of the job. And that's why it's so informative, their system. Yeah. Finding that, that the thing that really matters in the business and the operations and, and finding a way to give people direct kind of feedback or direct uh, connection to the value they create or the value they destroy based on their performance is, is huge if you, can, if you make that connection and set up that system. Tell me about uh, kind of the last point of the book, sharing is caring. You got the example of Steve Rothschild. So when you go from kind of this uh, operational performance base to really kind of a profit sharing model, what are some strategies you can use to, you know, share the love with your employees, you know, when things are going well inside the business? Well, you know, as, as he points out in the book, first thing is you've got to be crystal clear. This is, I'm not expecting people to work harder for it. It's too long-term, you know, for it to have any kind of effect on to the day-to-day activities of your people. But here he feels like it gets them to think different, to make better decisions. Again, it's more of an informative effect than it is a motivational effect. By the way, having a bonus sharing plan, and this is what the client we had yesterday talked about, said, look, you could just got to have it or you're not going to get the talent in the yeah. 21st century. So it has a selection effect up front. The fact that people in his industry know that if you join his firm, you've got this significant opportunity to make 15 to 20% more from the profit sharing plan at the end of the year. But the main thing it does is get them to think like owners. So there were two decisions he highlights in there. They used to go to all kinds of trade shows. And Mm -hmm. once they moved to this profit sharing plan, it was the employees that came to him and said, look, I think there's only these two shows that are worthwhile. And by the way, when they were at the shows, they used to do a lot of whining and dining. But again, that would come out of the profit sharing plan. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know what? Why don't we cut that out? And so it was nice that you've got all the brains in the company engaged and thinking like the owner and not just the owner. And that's the kind of information effect that you want to have happen inside the organization. Yeah. And, and I've seen, I mean, I, I'm probably uh, did this early in my career. Um, I think there's a big difference between a real profit sharing plan and a deferred compensation plan. <laughs> I think originally there was this kind of idea of, okay, yeah, we're going to put this bonus plan in place, but then we're going to, our base compensation is going to be lower and we're going to kind of make up for it. I think that's problematic. Tell me a little bit about how, how you need to be careful about that. Cause I think that comes up a lot. Well, but again, I, this is where you also want to be careful about any bromites around this kind of thing. We we had a client up in Calgary who, you know, their biggest challenge, they were, you know, McDonald's workers were making, you know, 25 bucks an hour. And it's back when the oil sands were going crazy. And yeah. he's just trying to get some employees for a service firm. And so what he did is he put on in a deferred bonus. And, and one of the things that we know with uh, Robert Cialdini's principles around influence, people do more to avoid a loss than mm-hmm. to get a gain. So yesterday in the tech company, we're like, hey, if we could keep employees for five years, that would be like forever in our industry. And so we laid out some additions to their comp scheme. They're going to reinforce, inform those employees that, hey, if you're going to leave any time before the fifth year, you're going to leave a lot on the table. Now, back, I think, to what you were inferring is if you're trying to do that with a very low base, again, That could work in certain situations, 
the key, but generally you don't want to be sacrificing people's living wage, what we call a good job Mm -hmm. in order to kind of trick them into saying. So there's a lot behind your question, but what I've learned is, and maybe maybe an example to finish with, everyone has been hearing about Google's decision about reducing the pay of certain employees who have chosen to stay remote why others have said, hey, we're going to come in, and maybe it's important that they have some of that interaction. And a lot of folks think they were going to kind of trick me opening up with that example. But <laughs> under the principles we just looked at about being different and fairness, not sameness, yep. and the informative effect and all of that, I am not going to be quick to criticize Google over that decision. I think it could actually be a great decision. And more importantly, they're going to know very quickly uh, yeah. what the what the results are. But I'm guessing there's so many other, and that's that's how I think have, we have to end this. Is ultimately it's about two things: is it raising the energy or kind of becoming a downer inside the organization? Because the chief energy officer, the CEO, CEO that's mm-hmm. their job to keep up the energy level in the organization. And really, number two, you want to get it right and out of sight. You just, you want to get it fair enough and rational enough that you can then go work on the other things that really, in many cases, matter more if you get compensation right, like the culture and and the rest inside the organization. And so, you know, let's let's keep that perspective around the comp decisions. Yeah, Vern, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about uh, the book, more about uh, scaling up, what's the best way to get that information? Well, the book's called Scaling Up Compensation. Right now, uh, Bruce is just an e-book. There's a 12-week backlog of paper because uh, <laughs> of all the supply chain challenges. So we'll mm-hmm. have the paper copies out sometime the beginning of 2022. But don't wait. You want to get an upper hand on your competition. So it's Kindle, uh, Amazon, iTunes, the whole bit. And then with us, it's easy, scalingup.com. And my email is vern at scalingup.com. So uh, we had to go back and change the name of our company because it was hard to spell, uh, which is sometimes I see with service companies as well. So it's all about branding at the end of the day. Yeah, Yeah, good. I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes. Vern, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.